Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series today, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 to 27, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, God's Appointed Times. God appoints his times and seasons. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 tells us there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born and a time to die and so forth. Now, this, of course, is in line with what Hebrews 9.27 indicates when it speaks of the appointment of every human being to die once and then after that comes the judgment. But, of course, not only was the day of our death appointed by God, so also was the day of our birth. David said so in Psalm 139, verse 16, when he speaks of God viewing him as he was being formed in his mother's womb. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God appoints our times and seasons, but he also appoints the times and seasons of the world. History, as the great Bible teachers of the past have taught us, is not circular. It's linear. It begins at one point in time, and it moves ever so surely to God's appointed ends. Ephesians 2.11 reminds us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is, God so ordains that even the evil that is done to subvert his wise designs, even that plays into his counsel so that even evil will in the end be used to serve his purposes. And if that's so, and it surely is, it must then be that the coming of Jesus into our world, that is, its precise timing was overseen and ordained by God. That's what Galatians 4.4 tells us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Yet Jesus came in the fullness of God's timetable at the precise moment in history when God would display his plans. And once we know those things and once we settle our hearts on the truth of these things, well, it informs the way we pray. Praying with confidence is praying as God directs us, as well as praying in the will of God. You know, we've been studying the last half of the book of Daniel, and we've noticed that God had given Daniel a number of visions that have told him something of the sweep of history right unto that time when the end of the ages would come and the kingdom of God would be consummated. As Daniel was considering these matters, He was reading the book of Jeremiah, and as we've seen, he found that part of the book where he he reads that the exile will last 70 years and the days of exile are coming to an end. But as we've also seen, this news deeply concerned Daniel. He knows that the kind of repentance Israel needs for past sins has not yet occurred. And by the way, by the time we get to the book of Nehemiah in chapters 8 and 9, that kind of repentance actually took place. But Daniel takes the lead, and he begins to pray both for himself and for the people of God. And his prayer is a model of what repentance leading to renewal and revival looks like. Since God acts according to his agenda, not ours, then God's people should get right with God, not committing sins that put them outside of God's blessing. That's how we should all pray. Now then, let's come in today at the very end of Daniel's prayer, where Daniel 9, 17 to 19. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, this last section of Daniel's prayer leads us to consider God's plan for the ages. And notice first why it is that Daniel is so bold to pray as he does, pleading with God for mercy and to forgive the sins of his people. Notice in verse 18, he prays as follows. Listen to the prayer of your servant to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. Well, stop there. For your own sake, he prays. See, Daniel knows that effective praying is praying in the will of God. And he also knows that when God acts, he acts for the sake of his glory. And Daniel says, look, Lord, glorify yourself in what you do. And notice also that Daniel's very clear about what he's asking God to do. Make your face shine, he says, on your sanctuary. As you've promised, restore Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, and make it the center of your dealings on earth. I'm asking you to bless your unworthy people for your own glory, and I'm asking you to fulfill what you've already promised that you would do. And you might wonder about that, but Daniel's praying God's will back to God. For the sake of his glory, he wants God to do what he promised to do. And then whenever any child of God prays that way, calling out for God to glorifying himself, Lord, don't hide your glory, and then appealing to the promises that have been made, we know that God will answer in the affirmative. God will say yes. So we continue to read Daniel 9, 20 to 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So notice here that Daniel says he's been praying for at least two things. First, he's been confessing sins. We know it's always the will of God to confess sins. Pray this way, God will hear. Second, Notice that Daniel says that his plea has not just been for the restoration of Jerusalem, but for the holy hill. He's, he's praying for the temple mount that is now desolate. He wants the place of worship to be restored. It's the place where God not only calls his people to worship, but he also calls the nations of the earth to come to that place and acknowledge the one true God. See, I, I would imagine for Daniel, as, you know, as he prays the way he does, it's no different than for us to pray for the purity of the church and for the salvation of the lost. God, do not let the world be without a witness of your majesty. Show forth your glory. And then while Daniel's in earnest prayer, Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to him before, appears to him again. And now notice that Daniel says this happened at the time of the evening sacrifice. And you need to remember, there's no sacrifice being offered because, you know, God commanded that the sacrifice could only be performed in the temple. And of course, the temple's in ruins. But Daniel is aware each and every day when the sacrifice would have been given. 
He is in tune with God's will. And so Gabriel appears to him at the very time when sacrifices would have been offered. And Gabriel has come to give Daniel understanding. See, it may be that Jerusalem is in ruins and the temple is in ruins and that the exile is ongoing and that Israel's repentance is not yet genuine. But what's needed now was understanding or insight into what God was up to. And so being told that he's greatly loved by God, Daniel received what is now his third vision. Verse 24, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. You know, that is a mouthful, so let's start with the 70 weeks. Now, this most likely refers to 70 periods of seven years, so that amounts to 490 years. And in 490 years, six things are going to be accomplished. The first three of them, finishing transgression, ending sin, atoning for iniquity, that's the question of sin. It's going to be dealt with. It means man's rebellion against God is dealt with. You know, sin missing the mark. Iniquity is all atoned for. It's forgiven. And the second three events, including bringing in everlasting righteousness, you know, which seems to be the hope of the kingdom of God, when wickedness is brought to an end, kingdom goes on forever. The sealing of both the vision and the prophet speaks of God's central plan for the ages. The prophet is the great son of man who approaches the ancient of days. You know, we read about that in Daniel 7. Finally, the anointing of the most holy place or the anointing of the holy of holies, that most likely refers to the holy place of God's presence at the end of the age. So in effect, what Daniel hears Gabriel saying is that right now we're 490 years from seeing sin dealt with and ushering in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Well, when you read that, you might say, well, now clearly Daniel must have got this wrong. It reminds us of all the people who've, you know, predicted the end of the world and even down to a given year, and then nothing has happened. But hang on, for after this it gets very interesting and we'll see the meticulous sovereignty of God. I Will Tell. This is a series where Dr. Newfeld focuses on the theme verse and a command found in Psalm 78 verse 4. In it were compelled by these words, I will not hide the great deeds of the Lord, which he has done in the past from the next generation. This popular series provides you the tools and incentive to share the gospel. It will help inspire you rather than guilt you into action. It reminds us that we each bear responsibility to intentionally share the truths of the gospel, the God of the Bible, his deeds and his provision for all those that believe. This month, We're excited to offer this entire series on CD for anyone who would ask. Our gift to encourage and inspire. Ask for a copy of I Will Tell for yourself or even pass it on to a friend. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. We've come to the point where Daniel's been told that God has a unique timetable in which the world events are unfolding for a very specific purpose. In 77s or 490 years, something amazing is going to happen. The sin question is going to be dealt with and the kingdom of God will unfold. So we come to Daniel 9.25. 
Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So we have here 69 weeks in which something will be accomplished. You know, the Hebrew word for the anointed one is the word Mashiach. We get our English word Messiah. So in 69 weeks, the Messiah will come. He will atone for sin and establish the kingdom of God. And at this juncture, we've got to ask, did Daniel get his dates right? That is, what is the starting point for these 69 weeks? And the answer is given in verse 25. We just read it. The period begins at the time when the word is given to restore Jerusalem. Okay, let's be clear. What is that date? And there are some who say that date must be the events that we read about in Ezra 7 verse 11 and following, in which King Artaxerxes gives a decree that any Jew that wants to go back to his homeland can go back. And as we know, Ezra led back the first group of captives. That date began in 457 BC. So perhaps that's when the prophetic clock starts ticking. But as has often been pointed out, there's no decree to rebuild the temple then. But there is a second decree, and this one is recorded in Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. Nehemiah tells the king that the place of his fathers is lying in ruins, and he asks the king to allow him to give leadership to the rebuilding of the city, and King Artaxerxes agrees and issues a decree, and that date was 444 BC. So let's make that our starting point. Then according to verse 25, there will be seven weeks, or as we've seen, 49 years, and that period is followed by another 62 weeks or 434 years. And so we add those numbers up, 49 plus 434, and we get 483 years. So from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes in 444, we move forward to 483 years, and says Daniel in his vision, we come to the Messiah. Well, and several more things need to be added to this formula. You know, the biblical prophetic years are not our 365 and a quarter days, but rather 360 days. And if you're wondering how I got that, there are plenty of examples of it, and it uses the lunar calendar. So using that formula, we come to a fascinating conclusion. The date of Artaxerxes' decree happened, according to Nehemiah, in the month of Nisan. It would have been Nisan the first, which in our calendar, as we use it today, would have been March 5, 444 BC. And then we add 483 years according to the lunar calendar. That works out to 173,880 days. And we come to Nisan 10, AD 33. That's the very day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the cheering crowd who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. I don't know what you're thinking. It's breathtaking. So let's keep reading. Daniel 9, 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So notice what happens next. First, says Daniel, at that time, the anointed one or the Messiah is going to be cut off. And we take this to refer to his death or as we now know it, to his crucifixion. So just so that we can take it all in, let's come to terms with what Daniel has said. 
He predicted the exact date when Jesus would be known as Messiah to Israel, down to the day. Then he predicted that immediately after that he would die. And we remember also the wider context because as Daniel has already told us, it would be that during this time that atonement would be made to deal with the sin problem and to usher in the kingdom of God. And and I say, as I've said before, there is no other book like the Bible. As Isaiah said, go ahead, ask all the idols and the gods of this world to predict what is to come so that we might know that they are gods and not merely fabrications of the human mind, inventions of human ingenuity. Indeed, indeed. Now then, Daniel tells us that the people of the prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, what does that mean? Are we to understand that the prince is the same person as the Messiah? Well, most Bible teachers assume not because the Messiah has been cut off. Some Bible teachers think the prince is in some fashion synonymous with the little horn in Daniel 7 and therefore refers to the Antichrist at the end of the age. Remember, we've only gone through 69 weeks. There's still a week to go. You know, others think of the prince as the Roman emperor Titus, who ordered that Jerusalem should be burned down in AD 70, and then the people of Israel driven from their homeland. But that doesn't work out in terms of Daniel's timing. But here it's important to remember Daniel's progression of events. He predicted the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And then there's a time gap in which the final empire of the Antichrist will arise. But here, at least in my estimation, we should become aware of a number of patterns in Scripture. And we've already noticed those patterns as we've been reading through Daniel. We noticed that it was the Babylonians who destroyed the first temple. That is, the temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. We also know, as we've seen, that Artaxerxes issued a decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. That was in 444 BC, and eventually the temple would be rebuilt as well. Then we saw that in 167 BC, a man of lawlessness, whom we now know as Antiochus, desecrated the sanctuary by bringing an altar of Zeus into the temple and sacrificing a pig there. And you will remember that Jesus spoke about this as the abomination of desolation, and he said it would reoccur in the last days. And then we saw that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed again. And these are patterns. And it would be easy to say that the final end times ruler, whom Daniel called the little horn, whom we now know to be the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, is like Antiochus. He's going to make it illegal to worship the one true God. Daniel says he will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So does that mean that in the end times, the temple is going to be rebuilt only to be destroyed again? Well, we don't know with any certainty. You know, it may be that the sanctuary Daniel speaks of could be configured in a different way. I mean, there are those who argue that the sanctuary spoken of here actually refers to the church of Jesus, the people of the Messiah those who have been atoned for, as Daniel calls them. At any rate, it would seem, however, that however we conceive of this, that the last horn, the Antichrist to come, fulfills all the previous desecrations that have been done against the people of God in the past. And with that, we come to the last verse of Daniel chapter 9, which we read, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, That's the last week, the 70th week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of the abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
So Daniel now takes us from the time of the Messiah, that is, from the time that Jesus laid down his life for his people to atone for sins, and then there's this time gap until the time of the end, and then the clock starts ticking again. Notice here, Daniel, unlike before, gives us no timeline as to when that will be. Rather, what he does is to tell us about the times of the end. He speaks of the reign of the last one who resists the rule of the Messiah. He says he makes a strong covenant with many for one week, and we know that now to be the seven-year period that we often call the Great Tribulation. And then Daniel divides this tribulation into two equal halves. And so for three and a half years, the Antichrist, like Antiochus, puts an end to sacrifice and offering. I think Paul speaks about that when he talks about the one who opposes and exalts himself over every so-called God or object of worship. He puts an end to the worship of the true God. This is the last abomination. But, says Daniel, it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the decreed end when he is destroyed. And by now, we shouldn't doubt that God can decree the end. After all, it's his timetable. He's the Lord of history. He moves all things forward according to the counsels of his will. So if you've ever doubted that God who predicts the future will bring it to pass, you should doubt it no more. Indeed, Daniel predicted the very week of our Lord's ride into Jerusalem and his death on the cross. Why doesn't Daniel give us the exact timing of the second coming? The answer is simple. In his infinite wisdom, God has ordained that only he knows that day or hour. But as for us, let's not be afraid. We have every evidence in the world that God is in control. Thanks so much, John. Hey, just for a point of clarification, when you discuss the 70 weeks, you suggest 70 times 7. How did you come up with that? Yeah, I said a seven was a period of seven years, and uh, you get that very same formula way back in Daniel chapter 4, verse 16, where God decrees that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be mad for a seven, and we know that happened to be seven years, so it follows exactly in line with how the entire book uses a seven, and then later on, as we're going to see, uh, a seven works out very nicely to show us future events that are going to come. So uh, we know that we're right on that one. It's a great question. People sometimes ask it. And so I always invite people to go back to Daniel chapter 4. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Kingdom of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Did you know that Back to the Bible Canada has a weekly video Bible teaching series? All videos, both archived and current, are easily accessible on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. The videos offer the excellence of Bible teaching you've come to expect from Dr. John Newfeld, providing insight into God's Word, God's character, and the life He has called us to live. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. There you can also access past video series and programs, including our recent virtual worship event, The Gathering, 45 wonderful minutes of worship, Bible teaching, laughter, and encouragement. 
For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.